0: hey guys, what's going on? It's another episode of all out War. I am Turner and I'm in the studio with Rosie. What's up Rosie? Hey, what's up man yeah, so we have something a little different today. We have hence the different format different format that's right uh we have a phone in guest call with dr C Gordon Olson, and we're gonna get in that in just a second but uh it's a unique podcast this episode because we're gonna talk about uh the balance between two major theological views, mainly connecting sovereignty of God and the free will of man, also known as Calvinism versus Arminianism. And so uh, we have Dr. Olson, who's an expert on a theology that he actually developed and coined the phrase in called Mediate Theology, which means middle. And he finds a balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of mankind based on inductive Bible study through the Word of God. So he uses the language of the original words, Greek, Hebrew, whatever it might be, whether it's the Old or New Testament, and he does an inductive determination based on the findings of the collected words. Uh, So, uh, in fact, there's one part where he doesn't mention it, but I had a conversation with him earlier in the week, and we talked about how he went back 300, no, 200 years before to find the use of a Greek word, 200 years before, prior, as many places as he could find it in any type of writings. Prior to it being used in the Bible. Prior to it being used in the Bible, to establish a consensus of what it meant when it was being used. And so that's that's some really strong inductive Bible study right there. And so that's how he kind of determined... Where he would come up with certain things about when, in particular, when we're talking about like uh, election, foreknowledge, predestination, those type of things, which are really important to Calvinistic theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and I would say, like, you know, I, I'll say for myself, I'm probably like a two point Calvinist. You know, I believe in the sovereignty of God completely, but I also believe in the free will of man. But I truly believe in what they call eternal security. Right, once saved always saved. Right, right. For to put it in layman's yeah. terms anyways. So we're going to get to that in just a second, but hey man, what do you know? Do you got anything Oh, cool?
1: hey, yeah. Did you know that in uh, 2004, so uh, the Cannes Film Festival, yeah, is a very prestigious film festival and they have the top award, the top award is called the Palme d'Or. It's for hmm. the highest prize awarded at the cane. And uh, it's for, like, best film, best feature film. So, in 2004, there's a bunch of movies that were shown there vying for this top spot. <laughs> and Shrek 2. <laughs> no way, really? Was in the running. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, good old Shrek 2. So, Shrek 2 was... Uh, in the running for best film
0: for <laughs> the kids. <cans>. <laughs> Is that the one with the uh, song from uh, from? Uh, right, Somebody oh, once told me I, I, I can't remember. Oh yeah, okay. That might be the first one, but, okay, yeah. No, the other the first one was the other Smash Mouth song. I think Smash Mouth made like a three movie deal with
2: <laughs> to provide a yeah.
0: That'd actually be a smart deal if you were a band yeah of course we'll do be. like a three like hey we'll do a three movie deal to provide the theme song or whatever yeah that'd be awesome that's smart yeah hey any bands out there do that i just gave you the idea like they've <laughs> never thought of it you know? yeah <laughs> oh man that's a cool did you know i love that one yeah that was that's funny it's like i th- i was wondering you know, like because cans is so like uppity uppity and like caveat and champagne and yeah on the, exactly on the what is it on the Cannes river is that is that what it is, yeah. or, or the Riviera? What is it? Uh, Cannes is in France, right? Yeah, the Cane. Yeah, Cannes. Yeah, Cane. Oh, Cane. Is that what
1: was the Cane well, River? That's how it's pronounced. Oh, Cannes. That's so American. Oh,
0: <laughs> it tells you how cultured I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, you know when we did this interview with with Doctor Olson that we're about to play, uh, at the end Stephen and I had we had to ask him about our favorite topic, the Nephilim in mm-hmm. Genesis chapter six. So you want to listen to the end. Okay, Uh, this is. I will say this too about this podcast. It's a heady one. It's Mm -hmm. it's This is a theological podcast. This one is theological. But if you hang in there and you listen closely, I think you can learn some great stuff. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and you know, I'm you know, I'm into all that. So for me, it's not hard to pay attention and listen. But just wasn't hard for me. (laughs) I was gonna say it was good. Yeah, and and I'll also make this note: Doctor Olson is 82 years old. Uh, he was a missionary in Pakistan. Uh, he was so, a, sort of a forerunner missionary in Pakistan in 1962. Mm. And um, so he's to Islam, you know. So he's very, he's extremely intelligent. He's He um, speaks Greek fluently and understands the language very well. And um, for 82 years old, there's moments where he has like, you know, senior moments where he kind of might stop. But man, I'll tell you right now, his mind is sharp. It's very sharp. And I tell you, I I want to be as like this guy when I'm 82. That's all I'm <laughs> saying. Uh, and he has such a zeal for the Lord. Yeah. It was a,
1: extremely humbling to
0: have someone like him come and talk with us. Yeah. I don't right. know what's going on. We get Dr. Lou Wing, and now we get Dr. Olson. Yeah. We're getting these... We're hanging out with doctors. We're hanging out with people way above our pay grade, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, it's going to be a good podcast, so sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War Podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of All Out War. We have on the phone with us uh, Dr. Gordon Olson. He is an amazing man who has been uh, in ministry for many, many years. He was called into ministry while studying engineering and graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary Uh, He's done ministry in Pakistan as a missionary. He's taught missions at uh, many different universities. And one of the things that I love about this man's ministry is that he has written several books, one that has been profound in my personal theology, and that is a book by the name of Beyond Calvinism and Arminianism, An Inductive Mediate Theology of Salvation. And that is a huge title. Dr. Olson, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. We're, Good
0: to be. So, we're so glad that you are taking the time to be with us for this episode. Um, I have looked through uh, your book. I've looked through most of your books, actually, and um, I have some great questions to bring up to you regarding uh, this in, this immediate theology. And so um, in the book, you say that you have developed or use primarily inductive Bible study method To bring forth this immediate theology. Can you explain what inductive theology of salvation really means?
2: Well, uh, when I was saved as a 19-year-old in engineering college, my buddy through whom I came to the Lord, and I had a doctrinal disagreement right away, because I was active in an Arminian church, and uh, he, he was active in a church that believed in eternal security. So since we were childhood buddies, we had to settle this. And he had a strong, strong concordance. So we looked up every verse that seemed to indicate that you could lose your salvation, and we did word studies on the key words. And uh, within a few months, we concluded that uh, those verses were all mistranslated. And a, a classic would be First Corinthians 9.27, which says that Paul, after preaching to others, was afraid lest he'd become a castaway, at least the King James says. Well, uh, we discovered that we looked at the word adokimos in, uh, in Strong's Concordance. We didn't know any Greek, but uh, this seemed a scientific method as engineers, you know, to, right. to, to solve the problem. Uh, and that really is the inductive approach. And, and, of course, adokimos does not mean castaway. We found out through word study that uh, as it's used in the rest of the New Testament, that it, has to do, it, it could be disqualified in a race or it could be dis, uh, disapproved at the judgment seat of Christ. So that was the beginning of our uh, inductive uh, approach to the Bible, which then was reinforced at seminary when I sat under um, Howard Hendricks uh, in the first course he ever taught on uh, inductive Bible study methods which was amazing course Uh, and uh, basically of course the inductive approach is different from the deductive approach Mm -hmm. inductive deals with the specifics so for instance when you're studying in a chemistry lab you take many different uh, uh, readings of the particular thing you're investigating and you make a graph of it and then you draw a conclusion from those many points of data well uh, that's what the inductive or scientific method is about. You have, must have many verses of scripture uh, and correctly interpreted, of course, uh, and many and indeed many uh, <laughs> messages of a word to be sure what the word means. Whereas the deductive approach uh, it starts with a general principle, such as in the scientific world, it's evolution. Mm. Uh, Which, uh, uh, and from that they deduce uh, the facts and uh, disagree among themselves. And uh, indeed, many leading evolutionists have no idea how evolution ever happened, it seems (laughs) counterintuitive. Well, the same thing in theology. uh, You start with the general principle of the sovereignty of God, and from it you deduce, uh, generally, Calvinism, (laughs) <laughs> uh, and uh, Or what is the uh, primary attribute of God? Is it holiness or is it, it, is it love? And uh, the Armenians emphasize love. So they start with love and love then is the deductive principle uh, on which they interpret the scripture. Whereas the Calvinists tend to make it the holiness of God. But well, we don't have to put any attribute of God first in our study
0: uh so i love that process of just gathering all of the all of the revealed uses of that particular word or that particular idea and accumulating them to create a consensus of what scripture is actually trying to say uh yes. and far too many people fail to do that today i hear so many pastors preaching <laughs> and uh they're trying to twist and mold the scripture into what they want their theology to say or they want want it to say for their theology it's almost like the reverse order that it should be yes, it is. so it is. on in so when you talk about inductive theology of salvation and you talk about mediate soteriology um, when you say mediate um, I have a phrase that I was brought into when when I became a pastor with the with the association of churches I was with, and they called it Calvinianism, <laughs> which was really the 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 balancing between Calvinism and Arminianism. Is that what you mean by immediate theology?
2: Well, that's that's a, uh, an appropriate word. Yes, uh, it's in the middle between Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, and that is to say, in reality, now. Uh, on the street level, uh, if you believe in eternal security, you're a Calvinist, but that isn't really uh, accurate description. Uh, but uh, the immediate theology is, I, I see the Calvinists as half right and half wrong, and I see the Arminians as half right and half wrong. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, when you put them together, uh, you, you end up in the middle. Uh, so, uh, uh It's a middle theology, and the word mediate perhaps describes it the best
0: mm. uh in your book uh you you mention the synod of uh Orange where they have a they make a decision in what they call they call a well I'll just read it it says it says uh, during this during the century after august Augustine, the controversy raged over his views of predestination and irresistible grace. At the Synod of Orange, 529, a semi-Augustinian semi-Augusti- consensus was achieved, which was the official position of the Western Church until the Reformation. Even though, in the main, it became increasingly semi-Pelagian in practice. Uh, can you t- can you kind of explain that a little bit for the layman out there? And uh, you know the, what was happening in the Synod of Orange and Augustinian semi-Augustinian versus Pelagianism and all of that.
2: Um, I hope that quote is, that, is, is accurate. I have, but it may, may need a little tweaking. But uh, basically what the problem is that uh, many theologies are based upon church history. And church history is very dicey. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to be sure without tremendous in-depth research just what was going on in church history. Well, uh, the early Christians, it's very clear. Uh, everybody agrees that the, uh, for four centuries, the church fathers believed in free will. They spoke of it and so forth. They make no mention of predestination or election.
1: Hmm. Uh,
2: but uh, there were, the controversy arose because between Augustine and Pelagius. Uh, and uh, Augustine took a very deterministic view of the Bible, and Pelagius, uh, we're not sure even exactly what he believed, but uh, supposedly he took a very free will basis based upon human initiative and effort. Although that's been questioned by some scholars who have, uh, are very familiar with Pelagius. But we don't have his original writings. So we ha- it's only as Augustine and others quoted him right. that we know Pelagius really believed You see. So uh after that in the uh a synod was brought together at Alarscio which in English we call the Synod of Orange and there they adopted not really a calvinistic view a middle view uh and I've uh, I won't go through all the historical thing of it but uh that uh but after the synod there were, it was an awfully strong influence of um, Augustine, upon theology through the whole medieval period, and right up to Calvin, who quotes Augustine, over and over again. But uh, uh, Pelagius, uh, or any middle view, such as some of the church fathers I've listed in the book, (laughs) uh, they they took more a a middle view and uh, were really the basis of small groups of Christians over the centuries who did not accept Augustine's determinism so uh really the, the problem of scholasticism of the pre-reformation period was a dependence upon church history rather than upon the scripture to determine doctrine mm-hmm. and church as i say church history can be so seriously misinterpreted and uh, well let me give you an example There was a a great theologian, one of the founders of the Evangelical Theological Society, who I I entered into a uh, jocular relationship with him. I'd meet him at the theological meetings. And he had told me, uh, maybe 20 years ago, that um, uh, Moïse Amiro, a French Huguenot theologian, uh, believed in conditional election. And he he had written his dissertation on Moïse Amiro, And uh, so for years, I thought I was a follower of Amiro, which is called Amaraldianism. Hmm. Well, uh, about 10 or more years later, I met this great professor in the seminary where he was teaching and he dragged me into his office. And uh, because he always used to to joke and say, Olson, are you still an Amaraldian? And I said, I guess so. (laughs) Well. He dragged me to his office to show me all the French um, uh, literature from the 17th century that he had on his shelves. And you see, he was French, and so he could read it firsthand. <laughs> well, after a couple hours of conversation, and I enjoyed them, and we had a good connection, I said, Dr. So and so, uh, years ago you told me that Amiro believed in, co- in conditional election. Two other writers, uh, Armstrong and Proctor, um, and Armstrong was his student and Proctor was in England. I got a copy of his dissertation. So I said, uh, uh, Armstrong and Proctor disagree with you. They believe that uh, Henry Rowe was a four point Calvinist. Hmm. And he's, well, you could be right, he said. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> what a shock. Aaron, this man had his doctoral dissertation on Amiro, and he got his theology wrong and admitted maybe uh, that he didn't have it right. (laughs) So chose chose the, and I mean, he read the original French. (laughs) So uh, in any case, the the point is that we mustn't build our theology on church history or philosophy Mm -hmm. uh, or rationality, you see. We've got to build it upon the inductive study of the word of God.
0: So where do, in, your, in your opinion, where do creeds, church creeds, fall into that? Because I know that they have a, a great value for helping understand and articulate theological stances.
2: Well, the, uh, the church creeds that are most familiar, of course, uh, do not get into issues like Calvinism or Arminianism, um, and uh, are quite general. However, the doctrinal statements uh, subsequent to that started to get more precise, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Mm -hmm. And the Westminster Confession of Faith has some serious blunders uh, of scriptural interpretation. Uh, For instance, in it, it states something to the effect, uh, pardon the wording, but uh, that God uh, has uh, uh, decided everything that comes to pass. Uh, based upon Ephesians 1:11, who works as the King James has it, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The problem is that there's a little two w- Greek word e- expression that's quite used quite frequently in the New Testament, "ta panta," which t- literally is is the the word "all" with the article before it. And in Ephesians 1:11, the Apostle Paul uses. Ta panta does it mean all things huh. well it can mean that but as you study the usage of Tapanta in the New Testament it uh, many times means all these things huh. speaking of specific uh, matters not everything right uh, so that's an important distinction and indeed so Ephesians one eleven is a very fragile basis for the Westminster Confessions idea that God has uh, predetermined everything that happens in the universe. Did God predetermine the Holocaust? That the the Nazis should slaughter 6 million Jews and Poles and and, uh, others uh, and so forth. So uh, this ends up with God being a a very different God than the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's among its most serious errors. But it, it is, of course, Uh, The standard for many Calvinists.
0: Yeah. So I have a question regarding soteriology, and um, it's a bit confusing to me, because it was explained, and this has to do with uh, how can a dead man believe? And when you're dead in your sins is pretty much the reference that has been used with me, that it's impossible, or you have, you're unable to call out to God before salvation, if you're not elect. How—because it just doesn't seem as though that's what Scripture has, has informed me, as I've read th- through the years. What, how do you explain that?
2: Well, as I said, the Church Fathers for four centuries before, uh, before Jerome's Vulgate translation, which translates pro-orizo as predestined, as the first time another say the church fathers said nothing about predestination except as a doctrine in in the pagan world hmm. so uh the uh, uh the problem uh with uh, uh i'm sorry i have lost the train of thought what what is the question
0: uh just uh, when how th- the whole idea in i guess it would be considered a Calvinist theological stance of when you're dead in your sins it's an, you you're un- oh, yes. you're unable to call out on God.
2: Yes, so uh, if, if uh, the Bible really teaches free will, as it does, uh, then uh, we have to understand what is meant by the death, uh, the, uh, the uh, depravity of the human race, and uh, nowhere in the Bible does it say that God took away our will to, to believe. <laughs> uh, and indeed, over and over again, the Bible challenges us to decide for Christ, to to claim him, to accept him, to receive him. Uh, that's in the Old Testament, choose you this day whom you will serve. Uh, apparently, Joshua felt that the people of Israel could make choices. They were not robots. And uh, so uh, 50 times over in the, new, in the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, this word uh, "seek" to seek the Lord is emphasized. And choosing in many other places and so forth. So we have a responsibility. So what does depravity mean? That not that we became a totally dead. You know, yes, we became spiritually dead, but of course, soulishly, we didn't become dead. And uh, so the human race, as described in the in the Bible, uh, after the fall, uh, is still created in the image of God. Genesis nine six after the fall, God said to Noah uh, that uh, uh, whoever uh, um, whoever kills man uh, or murders man by him <laughs> shall. I, I'm, I'm not quoting it right. By him shall um, uh, uh, his blood shall be shed.
0: Yeah. Here, let me, uh, in other let words,
2: me. that the the person who kills is responsible. And, uh, and it goes on to say, for in the image of God, he created him. And that's the key. Yeah. We are still created in the image of God. Man didn't totally lose the image of God when he fell into sin, and that's the key point.
0: So you're you're equating the soul of man as part of the image of God, even though his he's separated from God spiritually and dead in his sins in that sense. His spirit is not alive, but his soul is still part of the image of God, which has that ability then to call out on God or receive or reject? Exactly. Okay.
2: Yes. The the New Testament makes very clear uh, that there is a difference between the soul and spirit. Even though in unsaved human beings, that distinction is not very clear. But once we get born again, it's because our human spirit has been regenerated or born again and uh, but uh, that involves uh, the gospel being presented to soulish people who who are not spiritual they don't have the holy spirit but they are able their soul has the ability to respond to the gospel message and that's that see what what moved me in this direction was teaching the life of Christ. And I found over and over again in, uh, in, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it was just uh, reinforced to my thinking that uh, the Lord Jesus kept commending people for their faith. Hmm. Now, um, another Calvinistic idea is that God gives us the faith, but there's not one verse of scripture that supports that idea. And even Calvin himself didn't believe it, In his exposition of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, as we read it in the translations, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any mention boast. What is the gift of God? Well, Calvin said the genders don't match up. So it couldn't be faith that's the gift of God. It's salvation that's the gift of God. And he was right on track there. So Calvin, well, at that point, was not a very good Calvinist. He certainly wasn't. Five, <laughs> five, he certainly wasn't a five-point hyper-Calvinist. And by the way, there's another problem with the Calvinistic view that uh, they claim that Calvin believed in five points, uh, which uh, the tulip. However, I, in studying through uh, Calvin's writings, it's very clear that he believed uh, he did not believe that Christ died just for the elect, he believed in general redemption, that Christ died for all. So he was, Calvin was only a four point Calvinist. Uh, (laughs) It was Theodore Beza, his successor, who added that idea of uh, irresistible grace and and, uh, limited atonement, I guess is the thing he added, the limited atonement, uh, which means that Christ only died for the elect. The so-called elect. Now, there is no doctrine of elect election in the Bible. That's a transliteration of the Lat of the uh, Greek through Latin to English. So uh, the word can mean elect when you have elections in a democracy, but uh, that word has uh, uh, once democracy ended, there were no elections. There are no elections under Alexander the Great. But he, he appointed people to his army to be green berets and so forth. So that word eklegomai, which is mistranslated uh, as to choose, that is that God chose the elect, uh, that's a gross mistranslation. One lexicon says, a recent, a very fairly recent one, that uh, uh, eklegomai may never mean choose. And there are only two clear passages where it, probably means choose, but in Ephesians one nine, the whole idea that from eternity past, God chose us to salvation is not there because the, that, the beginning of Ephesians 1, as I mentioned, uh, Ephesians one eleven, it goes back to the, the beginning of Ephesians 1, that is God's plan uh, for salvation is the first thing. It goes back to Christ's... Uh, re- uh, implementing that plan uh, through the cross. And then Paul says that God works all these things according to the counsel of his will. That is, he worked out uh, God's plan. He worked out the redemption on the cross. That was uh, predetermined, you might say. But then he goes on after that in Ephesians 1 to talk about how the Holy Spirit brings us to salvation, he doesn't include that in all these things. Hmm. That is a matter of our response, and that's what hit me in the Gospels. Hmm. Over and over again, Christ commended the faith of those believed. Christ challenged them, and the most important parable of all is the parable of uh, 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 Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the four soils, um, hmm. and where it's very clear that uh, this is... N- Christ did not teach that that four kinds of people that he uh, e- explains there or illustrates there uh, that uh, the difference is based upon the sovereign choice of God. As a matter of fact, he says that the first uh, the uh, the seed which falls upon the hard uh, packed path that even the the, the demon that uh, Satan's angels can come and click pe- 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 pluck up uh, pluck up. <laughs> you'll, you'll pluck up the seed so that it doesn't germinate. Well, how can Satan interfere if God gives faith sovereignly, you see? Satan couldn't have any interference. All right, and the same thing, with the others are all based upon pre-existing conditions of those four kinds of soil. And indeed, as a missionary in the Muslim world, we found that the... the uh, uh, Muslim world is very hard-packed soil, and it's very hard for the seed to penetrate. Uh, much different than, than uh, among uh, professing Christian, uh, the those who were raised in a uh, Christian society, or at least influenced by uh, Judeo-Christian ethics. So we find that uh, uh, people vary in their responsiveness to the gospel based upon pre-existing things in their lives. As the Lord Jesus clearly taught,
0: hmm. that's, am- that's amazing. That's amazing. I I like the use of that parable to to demonstrate that that truth. Um, that's always been something for me that I've struggled with too, in terms of election and the understanding of that. Because, uh, f- so for me, let me ask you a question in in response to that. Because God is a a, a holy and righteous God and judge. And at the end of all things, when he, when he pronounced, you know, the great white throne judgment, those that are found without faith in Christ will be cast, in, they'll be judged and uh, and they'll be separated eternally. Um, and it would seem like when you believe in this whole idea of election, that when God, if if you combine election and inability, so someone is not elected and they even if they were elected, or if they they still don't have the ability to even call out on God in that theology, it would make God a pretty vicious God that He would create someone and then not even give them the ability to cry out to Him for salvation. Does that right. make
2: sense? This is oh, absolutely. This is this is the the God God of the hyper Calvinist, and to, unfortunately, to some extent of the even the Calvinist now. Uh, you see, I have kind of uh, over uh, the first, uh, say, 20-some years of my Christian life, I fluctuated because I was raised in an Armenian church. And then I came to believe in eternal security, and I went on to uh, Dallas Seminary where I was taught moderate Calvinism. And so I believed it and taught it for about 20 years. Uh, but as I say, in courses like The Life of Christ that I taught and the Book of Acts, Uh, I found that the Apostle Paul there, uh, that that the the gospel uh, progressed where it was effectively preached. Human factors enter in. So, for instance, uh, in, uh, I think it's Acts 17, the Apostle Paul ended up in uh, Berea, where it says that the people were diligent in the Jewish people in the synagogue there, that they were diligent in searching the scriptures to see whether these things be true. Therefore many believe Luke says, okay. wow. That, that means that, uh, the, if Paul hadn't been so effective in present and if, if their pre-existing condition, and also of course, Paul's confrontational upfront evangelism, uh, was another factor. Uh, and Paul admits, uh, at least one interpreter has brought me to believe that uh, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote in 1 Corinthians that, uh, well, I'm uh, determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that this is an expression of the fact that Paul blew it when he was in Athens, and uh, he never preached the resurrection of Christ in Athens. I'm sorry, the the, the death of Christ. He did mention the resurrection in passing, But uh, in Acts 17, I guess that's also Acts 17. So in any case, uh, the the point is that the the Apostle Paul, uh, he understood that the efficaciousness or the effectiveness of his approach to people makes a difference in their response to the gospel. And that's what we're seeing today. Mm -hmm. You'll find that uh, uh, where strong Calvinism reigns, you'll find very few people are turning to Christ. And today, on the street, it's the Armenians who are winning people to Christ uh, by the millions around the world. This is true. Now, it's true that there's prosperity gospel in there Mm -hmm. uh, among the Armenians and uh, so forth, charismatic things, which may uh, add to but the point is that they are out there doing it and seeing a response, which you know, I'm sorry to say many Calvinists are not doing it. Now, there are Calvinistic missionaries and so forth have been from the beginning. but uh, And there again, you know, I wrote a textbook on missions. The fact is that there's been a spin on the place of Calvinism in missions. The fact is that it was not the Calvinists who were at the, were at the forefront of global missions. It was uh, Arminians, like the first of all, the pietistic Lutherans. Hmm. Uh, they took the first initiative uh, from Europe to start to evangelize the world. And then the Moravians came out of that. Uh, and the Moravians were outstanding for a hundred years in sending out missionaries all over the world. And then uh, belatedly, uh, the uh, the Methodists began to do it, uh, preaching to, out to miners out in the fields, as John Wesley learned from George Whitfield, that uh, we've got to go out in the fields and preach the gospel because they were getting kicked out of the Anglican churches. Well, the the problem with um, uh, and that, and that uh, the West the uh, Methodist then began to send missionaries out. Now uh, uh, a lost Individual is named uh, Thomas Coke, um, who was a friend of John Wesley's, a colleague, and Wesley sent him to America to appoint uh, leaders, superintendents in the Methodist Churches of America. Because after the American Revolution, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, all the uh, Anglicans had to flee. You see, those who were loyal to to the King, King George. So um, he sent, uh, so Thomas Coke, however, didn't, well, he, he did what Wesley told him to do, but he then started recruiting missionaries, and he recruited some missionaries to go to Newfoundland, and uh, then later from England, he recruited Methodist missionaries to go to the West Indies, where he had visited, and he, he, he uh, a uh, mis- well, he was on a ship, which was trying to go to New- Newfoundland, and uh, the weather wouldn't allow it, so they, they went down to the West Indies, and there he began to evangelize and uh, uh, found some Methodists uh, who supported his work, and that uh, uh, Methodist churches were founded in the West Indies uh, <laughs> and there, and then he came to America and so forth. So Thomas Coke died uh, re- with a shipload of missionaries. I don't know, about uh, 20 he had on board the ship, going out to India and uh, uh, there at the end of his life, he was going to become a missionary himself instead of recruiting others. And (laughs) he he died on board ship. Now, nobody's ever, I called the Methodist headquarters in, uh, (laughs) in in, uh, uh, New Jersey and they didn't know anything about Thomas Coke, even though their press is called Cokesbury. And so there's, tremendous ignorance of church history. So, for instance, many uh, Calvinists claim that uh, the expedition uh, in, uh, oh, I forgot the date, in the 1500s to Brazil was a missionary expedition of the French Huguenots. That's a lot of baloney. This expedition was sent out by the king, and uh, the admiral who led it was a Catholic. He had priests on board. Yes, he had some Huguenots. And when they got to what is today Rio de Janeiro, which was then called Guanabara, I think, uh, uh, he actually ended up turning against the the Huguenots, and he, John Calvin, sent more Huguenots not as missionaries but to to survive from the persecution of the Catholics. You see, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: because the admiral had been a classmate of John Calvin's in law school. Well, anyway. The the whole story, yes, the Huguenots did try to witness to the Indians uh, a little bit, but uh, they really didn't have the freedom to do it. And three of them were executed as heretics because they didn't believe in the mass and and so forth. So this had nothing, this was not a missionary expedition. But that's the spin that that Calvinists have given on this expedition to Guanabara somewhere, I think, in 1555.
0: So we've been we've been hammering the Calvin the extreme Calvin Calvinists for a little bit here. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about Arminian theology because a lot of people have a hard time differentiating between the two. Um, I was saved in a four square what was really came out of four square um, church and it was Arminianist in its theology, and I can remember for many years after I received the Lord that uh, I would. I would question am I you know I was in a spot of of testing or difficulty in my faith or waning in my faith a little bit and I would question oh is my salvation secured you know and it wasn't until many years later when I really understood the whole concept of what it means to be born again and the role of the holy spirit in convicting and regeneration um So, for anybody that's listening to you know in our audience that might have a Wesleyan or a you know Methodist background or even you know an Armenian kind of rooted background, how can you help them to come to a place where they can really understand what eternal security means?
2: Yes, the uh, as I mentioned uh, through my buddy and our our inductive study, uh, we came to the conclusion uh, uh, that the Bible teaches eternal security. And uh, the key verses, now for instance, uh, Hebrews 6, 6, uh, 6, 4 through 6, has been mistranslated, and it is the major problem verse. I was on a a telephone call-in program in the metro New York area for 10 years, and the number one question we got month after month is, what is Hebrews 6, 6 about? (laughs) Well, it it doesn't say to fall away. The word parapipto is only used once in the whole New Testament. So what does it mean? Well, from it is derived the word paraptoma, which is a common word for transgression. So the Charles B. Williams, in his wonderful translation, uh, uh, who was professor of Greek at Southwestern Baptist Seminary, the first professor, he uh, did a translation in 1937, and he puts a footnote under Hebrews 6, 4, through 6, and he says that, it's the picture of a runner stumbling in the race, not falling away, but falling in the race.
1: Hmm.
2: And uh, uh, so it doesn't imply that you lose your salvation. And indeed, uh, that's, uh, since the word palaptoma means a transgression or a sin, they fell into sin. And don't all Christians sin? Well, the holiness, that's another problem of the Armenian thing, is the holiness movement which started from John Wesley's teaching. John Wesley was one of the greatest Christians, perhaps in the modern era, but he wrongly got onto this idea that the solution to so many backsliders who were seemingly losing their salvation was the doctrine of the holiness, uh, the holiness doctrine that we could be sin- become sinless. Uh, through, well later, the, the baptism of the spirit was explained as the basis if you have the baptism of the Spirit, you can become sinless. So some Christians say, "Well, I haven't sinned in ten years." Baloney! <laughs> I sin every day. You see, they've yeah. got a false view of what sin is. And indeed, uh, in my Armenian church, when I once I was a born again Christian, I stood up in the campus career group which I headed, and uh, I said that uh, I, I made a confession that I had. Fallen into a particular sin and I'd repented of it, and uh, uh, that uh, uh, therefore I was forgiven. Well, the pastor came up to me afterward. And he said, Gordon, Gordon, that was, wasn't sin, that was a mistake. <laughs> well, <laughs> well can you see where they're coming from. He, he apparently believed in the holiness doctrine. He never preached it clearly, but uh, in any case, they, that's one of the, the problems that came out of Arminianism, unfortunately. And, uh, but let's go back to assurance of salvation because when my buddy and I came to the assurance, uh, when I came to the assurance of salvation, believing in eternal security uh, within three months after my conversion, why one in September, when I signed up for the uh, registered for the junior year in engineering college, I knew I was safe, and we got into an intervarsity group and I got into uh, an evening Bible school and got into the word of God. But I I can say that that has been the basis of my assurance for now 69 years since I got saved. That is to say, I never wake up in the morning wondering, I wonder if I'm going to heaven or not. But I'm I'm sorry to say, there are both Arminians and Calvinists, hyper-Calvinists especially, who will wake up in the morning and wonder, am I really saved, am I going to heaven? And uh, R.C. Sproul admitted that, Who is a, was a five point Calvinist. And so so you see that the problem is both a Calvinistic and an Arminian problem um, in the lives of, I have found that among uh, born again Christians, I asked the question, how many of you have struggled with a problem of assurance? And usually about half raise their hand, that many Christians struggle with assurance because they have not really understood eternal security, and the gracious nature of salvation that is not based upon our works or our performance, it's based upon the grace of God and simple, repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Hmm. And so I had a uh, a conversation with a man one time, and it went something like this. He, he says to me, um, you know, I think you're a Calvinist, and I said, what what would make you say that? And he says, well, you believe in e- eternal security. And I said, yeah, I, I do believe in eternal security. And he says, but what about someone who denies Christ? And uh, my answer to him was very simple. I said, well, either he never was a true believer or God's grace is sufficient even in that lack of faith. And... Uh, and he said, spoken like a true Calvinist. <laughs> and, uh, but my answer to that was pretty simple. And I don't, I, I'd love to hear your opinions on what I said. This is how I view it. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so, my opinion is you're born again, you're a new creation, you can't be uncreated. Uh, and so, now you're what you look forward to is the reward of your faith, your faithfulness in obedience to Christ. So your life can either be built with gold, silver, and precious stones, or it can be built with hay, wood, straw, and stubble, and which will be burned up. And in that verse in Corinthians, it clearly says that it'll be burned up, but he'll be saved as one is escaping through the fl- flames. Yes. And so that's how I view that person who has weak faith or, you know, even as we would somewhat accuse of not even being saved, um, and which is dangerous anyways. Labeling people saved or unsaved can be kind of dangerous considering the Lord's the one that knows all those things. <laughs>
2: right. And we, we don't know their heart.
0: Correct. Right. So is that accurate on my side of things, you think?
2: Uh, yes, uh, that uh, really—I uh, uh, I have uh, written extensively on the— five warnings in the book of Hebrews. Uh, There's a whole chapter in my Beyond Calvinism on that, uh, at least the major part of the chapter. And I've now I'm in my, and by the way, I've done a New Testament translation called the Resurrection New Testament, which I published two years ago, which clarifies many of these difficult passages, hundreds of difficult passages I've, I put them in simple English and tried to make them plain to uh, ordinary Christians. But um, the, 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 uh, the, the thing with he, the warnings of Hebrews, the first warning uh, in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaks about uh, don't drift away from salvation. And that's the picture not of a uh, born-again Christian or even a professing Christian, It's just an inquirer. And I'm, oh, in my New Testament, I've entitled the so-called Book of Hebrews. Today we don't use that word, Hebrews, about Jewish people. Mm -hmm. So I've entitled it, uh, An Epistle to All Jewish People. And indeed, the Book of Hebrews is directed to all Jewish people, including those who inquirers who were coming into the Hebrew Christian congregations and, uh, but had never accepted Christ. Chapter two. Chapter four is about false professing Christians. Uh, the apostle writes to them, uh, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And clearly, the whole context of chapter three and four is that these people were not yet saved and that they should be diligent to enter into salvation by repentant faith. Chapter 6 as i mentioned is about born again christians who had a serious problem that uh, although they were clearly saved the first ver- first verses of hebrews 6 clearly are describing born again christians as most commentators will admit but uh, it doesn't mean that they could fall away from salvation as i explained hebrews chapter 10 goes back to the issue of counterfeit believers that uh, he calls them the people of God. But of course, Israel in the Old Testament were the people of God corporately. Mm -hmm. And yet most of them didn't believe. In the wilderness, they they all died in the wilderness. Okay, (laughs) and chapter 12 goes back to a warning to all, even inquiring Jews, that uh, see that you refuse not him who speaks from heaven. And are not from, just from the Mount of Sinai. And uh, so there are warnings to all different kinds of people, and that's what we find in churches today. We find inquirers come in. We find others who are counterfeit Christians. They haven't yet been born again. And uh, there are others who are Christians with a problem. And, uh, of course, the best thing is that we be Christians without those problems. <laughs> uh, you see, actually, the problem of the people in Hebrews 6 was that they thought that once they sinned, that they had to get saved all over again. Right. And this is a major error in Arminianism today: the idea that that uh, you uh, well, yes, you you got sinned and then you backslid and you lost your salvation, and now uh, you, you need to get saved all over again. So come to forward in the invitation and get saved all over again. And I don't know what churches particularly teach that, but certainly it's rife among Armenians. Mm-hmm. Well, that's totally unbiblical concept, and Hebrews chapter 6 shoots it down, because if you see the, the teaching of Hebrews 7 through 10 is that Jesus Christ died once for all, that we might be saved once for all. And if that's true of chapter 7 through 10, then chapter 6 has to be harmonious with it, that we can only be saved once, and that's once for all.
0: Well, I love your what you how you explain it in there that it's it's actually a believer who's falling down on the race during the race, not out of the race. That's uh, right. And even if they fall alongside the race, it still is there for them to get back up and uh, and it and also you know what backs that up is when Peter says a righteous man falls down seven times but he gets back up again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of backs that up as well, which would be which is such an encouragement.
2: Man. And indeed, he, he, even, even Peter blew it so many times, like in denying Christ three times. Right. <laughs> uh, he, uh, there was no indication that Peter lost his salvation for denying the Lord those three times.
0: That's an uh, excellent point. But,
2: but the difference is with Judas Iscariot. You see, Judas never repented. He was remorseful. That's why when he heard that Christ was—he saw that Christ was about to be crucified— uh, he he went and committed suicide because he was remorseful. But Judas, we know, is a son of perdition. He's not going to heaven. But Judas was that counterfeit believer among the twelve apostles. And uh, the the uh, uh, some I heard when I, as a new Christian I heard a wonderful message uh, by an evangelist explaining Judas. He said that Judas. Uh, saw Christ slip through the crowd, and many times when they tried to push him over the mountain up in Nazareth, and many times Christ would just slip through their hands.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so Judas thought, here I can get some money for for turning, uh, betraying Christ, and uh, I can have my cake and eat it too, <laughs> because Christ will just slip through their hands, like he's always done, and I can still be the... Uh, tra- the uh, uh, secretary of the treasury in the coming kingdom, (laughs) uh, which he had hoped to do because he held the money bag and he was filching from it. So Judas Iscariot was a classic example of the counterfeit believer, uh, who didn't have the reality. And so you're emphasizing first Corinthians, uh, three there about the wood, hay and stubble, uh, is very important passage because we do find that, uh, As believers, we are accountable for our works. And unfortunately, some have uh, um, abused the doctrine of grace by saying, well, we're saved by grace so we can live like we want. We can do anything we want. Of course we can't. Hmm. That there are absolutes of morality in the Sermon on the Mount and in Christ's teaching and in the epistles, which make it very clear that uh, we are going to be held accountable and I was just reading Matthew 24 and 25 where the Lord Jesus gave many parables about that same principle that there'll be some who will be rewarded and, uh, some rewarded a lot, some rewarded a little and others will be cast into hell, uh, Mm. among God's professing servants. And indeed the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew, um, seven, I guess it is. He said that, uh, uh, Many shall come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? And I will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Uh, I never knew you. That these are counterfeit believers, but they're, they're leaders in churches. And that's what we're seeing today. Wow.
0: Yeah. What a sober reminder. Oh, man. So, Dr. Olson, we have... This has been amazing. First of all, thank you yes, so much. Thank you so much <laughs> for just spending time with us and sharing your heart on these things and your wisdom. We have one question. It's a little off topic, but we like to okay. ask. Uh, we like to ask mature believers and people that have been in ministry this on this particular topic. It's sort of a fun topic for us. We just enjoy talking about it, and our listeners know where we're going with this. That listen to us regularly. So I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on Genesis chapter 6 with the sons of God and the daughters of men.
2: Okay, I take it that uh, the context is quite, quite clear, and the usage of sons of God is quite clear, that, um, that what happened was that the Sethites and the Cainites, uh, they intermarried the godless Cainites and the godly descendants of Seth, that that they married uh, daughters of Seth who were beautiful, and as a result, the, the whole human race was corrupted with sin, so that in Noah's time, only Noah and his family were the true believers left. Well, that's mind-boggling.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, they, you see, the, the problem with the interpretation that says that these were a, some demons who in, uh, had sex with women, uh, that the problem with that is, num- number one, that is not the way sons of God is used in the Old Testament. Uh, number two, that... Um, uh, the word, uh, the word that's used there, the Nephilim, which is translated giants in, the, in most of our translations, that the offspring of, uh, 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 supposedly the offspring of this marriage of demons with women was Nephilim, who were giants uh, in the land. However, uh, Genesis six is very clear that the Nephilim were in the land already before that intermarriage and afterward. And it doesn't mean giant. Nafal is the Hebrew word for fall. So the Nephilim are the fallen ones. So, uh, yes, after the fall, uh, uh, after the, uh, I should say, uh, in, in Noah's day, there were a lot of fallen ones both before and after. So, to the extent that the whole world was full of sin and God uh, had real specifics about having created the human race uh, mm-hmm. as it was. So he only saved the remnant of eight people to restart the whole thing. But uh, there, there really is, uh, in, and unfortunately the Septuagint translation translated uh, Nephilim as gigantes or giants. And the Septuagint was done by uh, Jewish people in Alexandria who were much absorbed in Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. And uh, this whole idea of of that interpretation uh, really goes back to the mistranslation, which is a gross mistranslation, because Nephilim does not mean giants.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, Doctor Olson, I appreciate all of your time and all of your insights on all of the topics we discussed today. It's been amazing to just have you with us on the podcast. Uh, we will, we will uh, look forward to maybe even a future time with you again. Get you on with, on a more specific topic that might um, that you might be interested in if you have that time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, well, I'd like, especially like to. Uh, say a word about my New Testament translation yes. uh, which I published uh, two years ago year, year and a half ago uh, called the Resurrection New Testament and um, I believe that God set me up back from those days in engineering college when I found mistranslations they're the cause of much of the doctrinal division among uh, evangelical Christians today
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's this translation so we need to correct some of these problem passages which don't make sense in the major translations. Uh, uh, Like, for instance, Luke 16, 16, that uh, uh, the the law and the prophets were until John and the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed since then, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Can you force your way into the kingdom of God? (laughs) Of course not, but that's what that verse says in every translation except John Wycliffe in 1382. He got it right. And the King James messed it up, and other translations have they've not realized that this doesn't make any sense. This is a nonsense verse in English, but it makes perfect sense in Greek. That So uh, uh, you see the problem in this translation over and over again uh, has caused doctrinal division. So that's why uh, in the last dozen years I've worked especially on this, putting this translation together. And uh, it's available through me. I'll, uh, if I may, I'll give my phone number. People could call. I'll happy be happy to send out copies. Uh, it's my, my number is, and uh, I'm the best source for it because I still have about I've distributed about a thousand copies through churches here in Lynchburg and pastors and churches are very enthusiastic about it. And uh, then nationwide, about 3,500 have been distributed. People all over the country are getting a box of them and distributing to their friends, their family, and to their churches, and so forth. And as a result, even though I I, I don't I self-published them and don't have any big uh, company to help me get it out, 3,500 have already been distributed here in America.
0: Well, I'm holding one in my hands as you speak <laughs> right now, and uh, we are going to provide a link to your website on the show notes to uh, to this podcast so anyone who hears it can actually click on the details of the podcast and they can go straight to your website and they'll have okay. availability to purchase off off of your website or get in touch with you through there uh, via well, email the
2: sim- simplest thing is if they call me because uh, i'll give give a better price uh, <laughs> than, than gotten anywhere else it, it's on amazon and so forth but but uh, it'd be much better if I just ship directly.
0: Yeah, and we want to encourage anybody who's listening to pick up a copy of the Beyond Calvinism and Arminianism, or its companion, which is really an abridged version called Getting the Gospel Right, A Balanced View of Salvation Truth. And uh any of those books are amazing. Of course, the New Testament, the 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 uh, Resurrection New Testament that he was just mentioning is a, is an awesome resource to have. I actually use your New Testament resource uh, with my when I have my Bible open, especially when I'm teaching through the New Testament and anything. I have your Resurrection New Testament open next to it on one side of my Bible, and I have Kenneth Woost's uh his translation as well open on the other side of my Bible and very <laughs> good uh, yeah they're they're complementary to uh to helping me understand so much more of what's being said there so we want to yeah, encur- encourage any listener to go ahead and check those out and we'll provide links and you can uh give him a call if you want to order one as well mm-hmm. wow wonderful Well, Dr. Olson, again, we just want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, we ask that the Lord would bless you and uh, take care of you. And uh, we look forward to maybe having you on again sometime in the future. Thank you. All right. You have a great afternoon, sir. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the All Out War podcast today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to know more, you can visit us on the web at alloutwar.us, or you can find us on Twitter at alloutwarcast. Hey, thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.